Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Father, thank you for this uh, word that has become so alive, this verse that has become so alive to me in the last few weeks and uh, more and more so every day. And I look forward, Lord, to every day declaring that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So, Lord, thank you for this word. May it, may it empower our lives and how we live our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned to you before that I have a whiteboard in my, in my home office. And I originally made this whiteboard uh, to, as a to-do list for me, and it ended up being a to-don't list because if anything that went up there, I never did. So it became a it became a whiteboard that um, became a, a whiteboard to write scripture to live by, which I think is more important anyway. Around two years ago, I preached a couple of, of series back to back that were impactful to me personally, and and it was actually around June two years ago that I preached this series called Every Thought Captive, and then right after that, I preached a short series called Choose Life. And I took snippets from those messages that went up on my whiteboard, and they've been up there ever since for two years on my whiteboard, so much so that when I went to erase it uh, a few days ago, it wouldn't erase very easily. I had to go get some Windex and, and get it off. But what, what I had on the whiteboard uh, were three thoughts. At the very top of it was think on these things, which uh, is from Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And then just underneath that, I had in big bold letters, choose life because I wanted to make sure all the decisions of my life were that I was choosing life and not choosing death. And that's from Deuteronomy. And finally, uh, on below that was uh, something that said uh, a, a phrase, against hope, believe in hope, and that's from Romans chapter 4. It's been on my whiteboard for two years. But because of current world events and because of uh, my reflections on what I'm, my current series I'm, I'm, about, I'm doing, that all changed a few days ago. I'd been out jogging early one morning, and I came into the house, and Lori was eating breakfast while watching the news. And it was the same crazy, often infuriating blather that you get on the news, and I wanted no part of that. So I quickly made my way into my office, and I raced my whiteboard, and I wrote two things on my whiteboard. At the top, at the very top, I wrote, Thy kingdom come. And just below that, I wrote, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Go ahead and keep that text uh, from this morning, uh, the first text up there. I, I put this on, on just below, thy kingdom come. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That was my news for the morning. That's all I needed to know. And no matter what is happening in the world, whether it is covid the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Whether it's the constant bickering or name-calling at the highest levels of our government, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Whether it be a sinking economy, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Whether it be protests or riots in the city streets, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And I believe it would do us all well to start each morning with two things. First of all, when we open our eyes to declare the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and to pray 
thy kingdom come. This is the second part of a series that I started last week titled, Thy Kingdom Come. And the purpose for this series, as I shared with you, was to answer the question, what do we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come? We know that Jesus taught us to pray in this way. And it's second only to hallowed be your name. It's that important to Jesus that we pray this, that's second only to worshiping God. After that, then we pray, thy kingdom come. But what did Jesus expect uh, to happen as a result of this request? And what do we expect when we pray, thy kingdom come? So I want to answer that. I want to address that over the next few weeks. But as I said last week, I believe in order to really understand thy kingdom come, we have to understand God's kingdom in general. We have to get a bit of background about God's kingdom. So last week was an introduction that I didn't complete. And so this morning will be part two, not only of the series, but part two, the finish of the introduction that I started last week. So let me, let me just briefly re- review with you from last week, because I kind of left you hanging a little bit. As soon as God spoke the universe into existence, God became its Lord and its King. There's, that's indisputable. If you're a believer, you can't dispute that. That God spoke the world into existence and immediately became its Lord and its King. We also know that the Bible tells us at the end of God's creation, He formed a creature called man to bear His image and likeness. Adam is even called the Son of God in the Bible. He's called the Son of God. Now, let me just say something about the Bible. We, we just sang uh, several times, I believe, I believe, I believe. And I, I hope that you believe the Scriptures with everything within, that's within you, that you believe its veracity, you believe it's true, that when God says something, that He means that. And so when God created man in his image and after his likeness, those were not just mere words. That was not a sham, but it is real. If God is serious, if man is truly to image God, then man must be Lord over God's creation. God is Lord and King over his creation. But then he makes man in his image and after his likeness, and he, and if man, and that, if that's true, If he makes his creature to be in his image and after his likeness, then man has to bear authority just like God does. Well, the Bible tells us that. We don't have to guess at that. Because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when he created man, he said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over what? All the earth. Let them have dominion over all the earth. And if that's not good enough, Psalm chapter 8, we looked at last week. I love this passage. I love the whole chapter. It's such a great chapter. But David was looking at the stars in the heavens, and he said, when I see all of that, he said, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that man has been made king and Lord and been given dominion over the earth just as God is Lord and king. 
But we know that, I said this last week, I, I used the word pesky, that pesky Genesis chapter 3 that we have to deal with. We know that, of course, something happened in Genesis chapter 3 that changed all of that. That when man fell for the lie and deception of Satan, he abdicated, he relinquished or gave up his authority over the earth. And I, and I said something last week, I probably need to take a little side trail here for just a second. Because I said something last week that some of you may have thought, okay, I want to believe that, but what about this and what about that? So let me just briefly deal with this just a second. Nobody said that to me, but you know, if you know your Bibles, you're gonna, you might think this. I said that when man relinquished his authority in Genesis chapter 3, that it didn't go to Satan. A lot of people, and Satan has us duped that he's got all authority and power, because when man gave it up, he gave it over to Satan. Well, man didn't really have the right to do that. He did relinquish it. He did give it up. But he didn't give it up over to Satan. Because the authority that God delegated to man was man's alone. And only man's. And I said that what happened is God took that scroll of authority until the one came who could handle it. He took it and he said, I'll, t I'll keep it until one comes who can until a man comes who can handle this. Now, some people might object and remind me that in the New Testament, doesn't the Bible say that Satan is the prince of this world or the God of this world? Well, it actually does say that. But here's the thing. I'm in the world, but he's not my prince, and he's not my God. You see, he's not, though he is the God of this, called the prince of the power of the air and the God of this world, he is a prince and God to non-believers who are deceived by his lies. But he is not the God of my world. He is not the king of my world. I am in the world. I am in a world that belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And everything that it contains belongs to God. That's the world I live in. And I live and ha move and have my being in God in his kingdom and not in some other sham kingdom out there. So back to the garden. I hope I dealt with that. I hope, I hope you understand that. Back to the garden. Man lost that God's delegated authority. And from that point on, and this is kind of where I closed last week, because I left you hanging, from that point on, God began to look for a man. A man who would take on the devil and win back the authority that he had for man. Man lost it to the devil, and man has to get it back from the devil. Last week I shared four verses with you about this. I'm not going to share all four verses, but I want to share one of the four with you again, remind you of this in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, where, where the God speaking through the prophets run to and fro throughout through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth. And I shared four verses. This is one of four that where God says, I'm looking. I look for a man. I look for somebody to stand in the gap. I look for an intercessor. I look for somebody who would, as it says, do justice and, and seek truth. And you find hints of this throughout the Old Testament. Uh, uh, you find a lot of it in the Psalms. For instance, Psalm chapter 1 verse 1, there's this longing and seeking for someone. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor 
stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And though we love to say, that's me, we know that we do not meditate on the word day and night and all of that. So God, so there's this hint of people looking for this one to come who would be one who didn't stand in the way of sinners and didn't sit in the, sit in the seat of the scornful. I love this verse, Psalm 24. We started with Psalm 24. Remember, Psalm 24, verse 1. Verse 3 says this, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He, that person, that man, shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And listen to this. This is the generation of those who seek him. So it is not only God who's seeking this man, but it is every generation is looking, was looking for this man to come. God was looking for this man to come, and every generation leading up to his birth was looking for this man to come. Isaiah prophesied, he said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And listen to this, this, this child, this son that's going to be born is going to get what? The government, the authority, the kingdom, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase and of the increase of his government, kingdom, authority, and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we're told that this one who would come that would take the authority back that would win that back for man was coming and Isaiah prophesied about him he was going to start out as a child but on this child and on this son was the was going to rest the authority the government the kingdom that we've all longed for and were made for Remember what happened when Jesus began his ministry at his baptism. The Bible says the heavens were open, a dove descended, and a voice came from the, from the heavens that said, this is my beloved son. Jesus Christ was declared to be the son of God, just like Adam was declared to be the son of God. Now there's a new Adam that's declared to be the son of God. Let me, let me just digress here for just, just a moment. It's important that you remember what I said last week when I said the battle, the battle is not between God and Satan. It never has been. A lot of people have the mis, mis, delusional belief that somehow there's this titanic battle between God and Satan and that they're somehow co-equal and we have yet to see who's going to win the final battle. That's, that's totally ridiculous. It's totally ludicrous. God can just speak a word and the devil would cease to exist. He's a creature. Come on. But just as it was in the garden, the battle is between Satan and man. It's always been, been between Satan and man. Man is the one who lost the battle in the garden and abdicated his authority, and it's going to take man to win it back. Now, I know I'm repeating myself a little bit here, but for good reason, because I feel it necessary to emphasize the humanity of Jesus Christ. I've said this for many years, that 
I, I believe that there's this fascinating difference between those who lived contemporaneously with Jesus versus us. Those who lived around Jesus at the time had a very, very difficult time believing that he was God. We, on the other hand, have a difficult time believing he was human. Those who lived around him saw that, you know, when you cut him, he bleeds. I mean, you, they, they knew that he was flesh and blood. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He got tired. He slept. He went through all the human things that we go through, the Scripture says. So they knew that. Even, even when Jesus asked the disciples, he said, what are people saying about me? Who do they say this, I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, well, they think you're Jer Jeremiah. They think you're, they think you're this prophet and this prophet and this prophet. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Remember what Peter said? You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Remember what Jesus said to him? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It's not because you've touched me and felt me. I'm flesh and blood. To you, I'm human. To you, I'm man. It took revelation. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed to you that he's Son of God. That's why he was transfigured, to show, to very briefly take away the, the, the veil to say, look, I am God. But Jesus Christ lived his life fully human. He was fully God, but the Bible says he divested himself of his divinity for our sake. He, he was born human, he lived his life human, he died human. He died a man. So, as a man, he's going to face the devil just like Adam faced the devil, which he initially did in the wilderness temptation. It was immediately after his baptism where he was declared to be the Son of God that the Bible says the Spirit led him into the wilderness, and he fasted there for 40 days. But when Jesus faces the devil, when this man faces the devil, it's going to be a tougher challenge than when the original Adam faced the devil. Why? Remember, the original Adam was in a lush garden. Where was Jesus? In the wilderness. The original Adam had orchards and fruit trees everywhere and probably came to this temptation with a full belly. The Bible says Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and was hungry. The Bible says, tells us, describes the garden that it was full of docile animals that Adam could go around and he could get close to, you know, animals we wouldn't get close to and name them. But the Bible says that Jesus in the wilderness was among wild animals. Adam faced one temptation. Jesus faced at least three. Both were confronted by the devil as sons of God. Adam caved, and Jesus resisted and sent Satan running. Temporarily, because in that passage also that talks about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, it says the devil left him until a more opportune time. So this wasn't done. It wasn't the end. He left for a period of time, but the Bible says he was waiting for a more favorable time. Remember the passage we read earlier in Psalm chapter 24, the 24 verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? As I was reading that yesterday, I really personalized that. 
Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord for me in my behalf? Who may one day stand in God's holy place for me, for all of us? The Bible says Satan left to come again at a more opportune time, and I have no doubt that Jesus was probably harassed and tempted by the devil during his entire ministry. But there's one crucial time, one crucial time, one time when he faced the temptation yet again, and this time it was in a garden just like Adam was in a garden. Maybe this is to help us to link back in in our minds to the original garden because there are a lot of similarities between the original garden and the facing of that temptation and the temptation that Jesus faced in the garden of Gethsemane. This time, and by the way, Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. So he calls him Adam. He's the last Adam. And this time, the last Adam steps forward. And I love this. I love this. I wept yesterday as I was writing my notes. I, was, I began to sob really uncontrollably when I was thinking about all of this. So this time, the last Adam steps forward. He puts his disciples behind him. He steps forward, and he says these words to those who were coming after him. He said, I am he. Here I am. Here I am. I'm the, I'm the one. I believe Jesus at this moment in this garden as a man stands in the place of Adam. I believe in some way, some mysterious way, it's almost like God, there's this whole redo. God takes Adam out of the picture, puts the last Adam in the picture and says, now get it right. So the last Adam faces Satan in this, in this ordeal, this struggle, this great titanic struggle. And I love that when, you know, we don't catch a lot of those little words that we, that we read about when, when they came for Jesus. But it does say he stepped forward. You know, he didn't, he didn't, you know, when he, he didn't flee into the trees during this temptation like Adam did in the garden. But he faced all that Satan was about to throw at him, and he was going to fight him to the death. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, and the Bible tells us that his life is ebbing away, I'm sure the devil is gleeful and gloating. And what people see when they see him up on the cross is this beaten man hanging limp on the cross, every bone out of joint, a swollen tongue, parched lips. He breathes out these words, It is finished. It's done. But the people watching the scene unfolding are not privy to what's actually going on. Nobody is. Because there's something going on behind the scenes that Paul describes in the book of Colossians chapter 2. And I'm quoting this from the, the message is so good here. He says, The slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross, He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. That's what was going on on the cross. We didn't get to witness that. But Paul said this is what was happening. I think in the King James it says he made a public show of them openly. I like 
<laughs> Eugene Peterson's, shamed them, put a chain around their neck and drug them through their universe and shamed them publicly with their sham authority. Well, we're not done yet because Jesus' Jesus body, the body of Jesus Christ lies in a tomb. God had promised that He would not abandon Jesus to the grave. I've never heard this before. I thought about this a few days ago, and it just gave me chills when I thought about it. I've never read this before. I've never, I've never thought of it before. It just came to me as I was reflecting and meditating on, on these things. And because I was relating Adam to Jesus, the first Adam to the last Adam, it occurred to me, something occurred to me, that Jesus is called the last Adam for a reason. The first Adam was formed by God's hands, but after he was formed, that body laid on the dirt, on the ground, lifeless, without breath, until God breathes his life into him. And now the second Adam... His lifeless body lies on the ground without breath. I'm speculating here because the Bible doesn't say that God did this, but man, if, if you're looking at the types of the Old Testament, because the Bible says that Adam, in, in Romans, it says Adam was a type of him who was to come. So this second Adam, this last Adam's lifeless body lies on the ground without breath, and I'm speculating that God breathed into Jesus' lifeless body the breath of life, and Jesus comes to life. And what happens when Jesus comes to life? What happened when the first Adam came to life? God spoke to him. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and guess what? I'm going to give you dominion over the works of my hands. And what did Jesus say? After he came alive, was resurrected, he got his disciples together, and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I got it back. I got it back for mankind. Go ahead and put that up there. I didn't realize I had it on here. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven, and thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's not an earth, it's not a heaven thing. It's an earth thing as well. One final thing, and I'm going to close with this, and this is just really a side thing, but I couldn't, I couldn't leave this out. It's so good. I want to share with you very quickly a trio of psalms that I believe are about Christ. Psalm chapter 22 is indisputably what's called a messianic psalm. It's about the death of Jesus Christ. Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which are the words of Jesus on the cross. In Psalm chapter 22, it also says, They have pierced my hands and my feet. In Psalm chapter 22, it also says, They cast lots for my garments. It's indisputably about the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's Psalm 22. What does Psalm 23 remind you of? I don't think I've ever been to a funeral where Psalm 22, 23 was not read. Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's about the grave. Psalm 22 is about the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, and Psalm 23 is about the grave. And then we have Psalm 24. 
Psalm 24 says, begins, we, we began with it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. But you know what else it says? It says, it's also the one that says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in this holy place? Who's ever going to get there? What man is ever going to get there? No man's ever been to heaven up to this point. Because we lost it all. There's a, there was a special place, a place called paradise. And all these saints from the old, from old were waiting there, waiting till the one came that would take them captive to heaven and no man had ever been there. And so when we read this, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, who may stand in the holy place, and it starts talking about he has, he has not sworn deceitfully and has not done all of this. Psalm 24 is a psalm of ascension. Psalm 22, suffering and death. Psalm 23, the grave. And here's what we read in Psalm 24, verse 7. Just go to the next, yeah. Lift up your heads. This should be in order. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the King of glory, pause here for a second, and the King of glory shall come in. The idea is, the Bible says when Jesus ascended, he, he led captivity captive. He took a host of the old saints with him that had been waiting for him in paradise. So he takes them with him, but he's leading it. And he's going up to heaven to these ancient days, the ancient of days, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 says, the, to the ancient of days. He goes up to the ancient of days. And so they begin to, to shout out, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. But there's been cherubim that have kept the gates for, from the ancient of times, would not let anyone come in. And so there's a response, and the response is this. Who is this King of glory? And so the entourage responds and says this. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, Lift up your heads, O you gates, even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. They respond again. We've never heard of this before. Who is this King of glory? And then the final verse of Psalm 24, verse 10 says, The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. It's the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's the ascension of Jesus Christ. I told you that I started out with a shorter verse. I wanted to read to you from Daniel chapter 7. Um, <clears throat> this verse has been so important to me in the last decade or so <clears throat> that when, we, when I had to have a password for our Wi-Fi in, <clears throat> at the church, I chose the pa password, Wi-Fi password in this church is Daniel 713F, little f meaning the following verse. That's just a typical thing theologians do. They put a little F, meaning the following verse. If there's two Fs, it means following verses. So it's Daniel 7, 1, 3, F. Let me read it to you, because this is what I almost started with this morning. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, came up to the Ancient of Days. This is him ascending, not coming down. He came up to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, this man, this man, Christ Jesus. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Amen. That's our king, and that's our God, and he won it back for us, and he gave us authority. So this is the introduction to why we pray thy kingdom come, because we're a part of that. We're a part of his kingdom coming. Amen.